whilst of course sport has existed in some form for millennia, it has for a large part been focused on the individual. The Olympics featured individuals representing a country, whereas organised team sport is more, well, focused on the team. Team sports, in short, are a far newer invention. The Middle Ages saw leisure activities such as jousting and hunting for people at court, but with the majority of human existence being a miserable lot, there was little time to play and organise team sports. But as Europe, and especially England, began to leave a subsistence lifestyle behind, the population, and especially the middle classes, found themselves with more time remaining. And so a leisure culture started to thrive in England. Former Prime Minister John Major stated in 1995, quote, we invented the majority of the world's great sport. 19th century Britain was the cradle of a leisure revolution, every bit as significant as the agricultural and industrial revolutions we launched in the centuries before. Close quotes. I would say most worldwide team sports originated in England. Even American sports, such as baseball or American football, owe most of their origins to Britain. In this podcast, we shall look at the origins of association football or soccer, and following through its development from its disparate beginnings in both English public school and working class towns, to its unification and then spread across the world into a global game. And we shall look at how football, in the words of former Liverpool manager Bill Shankly, that football did not become a matter of life and death. For some, it became much more serious than that. In 1941, George Orwell once said, quote, Serious sport has nothing to do with fair play. It is bound up with hatred and jealousy, boastfulness, disregard of all the rules, and sadistic pleasure in unnecessary violence. In other words, it is war minus the shooting. This, of course, came from a man who spent his life by himself in the bleakness of worlds like 1984 with little concept of teamwork. George Orwell saw the authoritarian and breads and circuses that team sport could bring. But team sports can bind communities together. They can give us hope. We can marvel at the skill of fellow humans. Never mind the fact that we live ever more static lives and the health benefits of taking part in team sport. We talked about it before in the introductory podcast about how history is viewed through the eyes of wars, leaders or great acts of state. But in the world of mass media, and the lack of great events like battles, sport, like football, can unite the world. If one were to rank the most important events in British history since the end of the Second World War, the election of Margaret Thatcher, the death of Diana, or the Falkland Wars, and these types of great state events are right up there. But so is the 1966 World Cup victory, which sits right next to them. But in an increasingly secular age, the weekly visits, the chants, the rituals, and the idolatry of sport 
has led many to compare it to a religion. People talk about how colonialism brought Christianity to Africa, how the American Empire brought a proliferation of Starbucks and McDonald's, but for sheer universality, the globalisation of football far exceeds much else. There is no world religion, but for billions of people who watch the Premier League, La Liga, Champions League and one of the greatest shows on earth, the World Cup, is a truly remarkable thing. And it all began on the fields of public school boys and working class men getting together to invent something great. In a 2004 speech to the Beijing Football Expo, disgraced former FIFA president Sepp Blatter said, quote, We honour the Chinese people for their country's role as the cradle of the earliest forms of football, having firmly planted the roots of our sport and helping set the course for it to grow into the beautiful game it is today. Close quotes. This has the element of the truth. The Han Dynasty, 206 BC to 221 AD, had a widely played game called Kuju, translated as kickball. The game was played with a stitched leather ball with two teams on a marked pitch, with goals at two ends. There appears to have been some form of handling and rough tackling allowed, and the game is thought to have been played in the army as a way to get cavalry units off the horses and to reduce stiff legs after a long ride. Under subsequent dynasties, the game developed with a new ball and the game became famous enough to appear in the tales of Walter Margin, one of the classics of Chinese literature. With the rise of the Ming dynasty, 1368-1644, it appears the game died out and Kuju disappears from our histories. The game, however, like many other things, travelled down the Silk Road and can be found in medieval Malay, whilst also going the other way towards Japan. And a form of Kuju was played as a game for aristocrats in medieval Japan and survived right into the 19th century. But Kamari, as it was called, withered with the Meiji Restoration of 1868 as Japan modernised. While other foot games have been described amongst the natives in America and Aboriginal Australians, but these games didn't have much influence at all on anything in Europe. In Mesoamerica, the ball game was crucial to culture and mythology of these societies, but what surprised the Spanish most of all was the balance that these balls the natives were using for Mesoamerica had, as they had rubber. Ball games spread to Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, and as far north as Arizona. The Spanish were amazed by the games and the ball, and Hernan Cortes brought players and a ball to the court of King Charles V. Much of civilised Europe preferred organised violence for social status and political power. The constant medieval warfare led to the preference of jousting and hunting as court games, meaning that ball games were never going to develop in the civilised world. Yet, in Celtic-speaking cultures, they proliferated. There is much evidence of ball games in places like Scotland, Ireland, Cornwall, with all different variations. <laughs>
Some games were played on open fields between different villages. Some were played with balls and sticks. The game was not liked by the normal English for various reasons. Edward IV in 1477 didn't like the game as it distracted from archery practice. Northern towns like Halifax, Leicester and Manchester banned the game between 1450 and 1650, while the Puritan Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell hated the game. Yet, with the dawning of the sporting culture in the 18th century, the rise of cricket, tennis and golf for the middle classes, hunting for the upper classes, and boxing and racing for the gamblers and merchants, the rise of sport was accepted, and football began to soar. It was by chance that the Anglo-Celtic melees of some vague form of football was to survive. As David Goldblatt states, quote, Kicking is as old as humanity. The ancients knew the ball, but football is born out of modernity. Close quotes. One of the most remarkable things about football's rise was that in 1800, the most popular sports in England were boxing, rowing, horse racing and cricket. By 1800, most of these sports had already been somewhat formalised with the help of the aristocracy. Football was barely even a sport. Hooliganism is as old as football itself, and the violence associated with the unregular sport of football, even back then, was something people were worried about. In 1835, football was banned on the street, and traditional games were being closed down by local councils. But it was in the English public school system, or to the Americans, the private school system, that the game of football began to be codified. These games at the time consisted of huge melees between towns and villages, all competing against one another for the pride of their location. There were probably few rules, and the aim was to get the ball in some sort of designated area. People could kick, throw and tackle in brutal and dangerous ways. So we get to the English public school system. It was not so much an education, as they mostly taught Latin, Greek and theology, but social status for entry into the upper classes. The schools were known as rowdy and downright violent. The army was called into rugby school in 1797, and the militia into Winchester in 1818 to put down student revolts. And so the idea of street football, with all the butchery it involved, sounded like two things that should go together, going together. At Winchester, these brutal games seemed to favour kicking and chasing, while rugby school, and you'll never believe this, favoured carrying the ball in the hands. The violence of the game began to change, with the headmaster of rugby school, Thomas Arnold. The first written set of rules were written by rugby school in 1845. And by 1850, most other public schools had their own rules for this type of football. The army, after the Crimean War, also saw a rise in playing of football within its ranks. The public schools began to push the use of football. However, with so many different forms of rules, some sort of codification was needed. The Cambridge rules were written, but a major conflict was soon found between schools that preferred slight variations of the sport. 
Some preferred kicking with the feet, while some preferred handling and carrying the ball with the hands. I doubt I need to ask you which one of these camps rugby school fell into. Outside the public school system, the game was developing some sort of formality, with many cricket teams forming their own football clubs. Sheffield Football Club was founded in 1857, the oldest football club still in existence. In 1861, Lily Whites published a full list of all the rules they could find side by side. After several attempts to codify the games again in Cambridge, nothing could be agreed. In November 1863, a meeting at the Freemasons Tavern in Lincoln's Inn Fields in central London was convened and a meeting of 11 old boys clubs from the London area tried to generate a single code from the many competing versions of the still new football. There was found to be little possibility of getting these differences past the group, which were now referring to themselves as the Football Association. Back in Sheffield, which has set up some of its own rules to begin to play football. These first rules had goals only four yards wide, leading to many nil-nil draws. But the rules were adapted and improved upon. Whilst many teams were still playing by their own rules, some teams chose to play by different rules even in the same game. Eventually, the Sheffield rules and the Football Association managed to agree on a codified set of laws. While clubs that wanted to carry the ball formed the Rugby Football Association in 1871. Finally, there were two distinct forms of this football, association football and rugby football. During the second half of the 19th century, football became a sport played by aristocrats in public schools to one co-opted by the working classes in both England, especially in the industrial north, and in Scotland. Football's beginnings were linked to the growing industrialisation of the country, with the rise of wages enabling spending money and the victory of the working classes in getting a half-day rest on a Saturday, which is why traditionally football in England to this day still plays a 3pm kickoff, so factory workers had a chance to get to the match. With football formalised, there would need to be a competition. When C. W. Alcock, as the secretary of the Football Association, announced, quote, "It is desirable that the Challenge Cup should be established in connection with the association." Close quotes. Thus, the FA Cup was born. Many did not enter due to the nationwide travel involved, and only two teams came from north of Hertfordshire: Queens Park, the first Scottish club based in Glasgow and Donington Grammar School from Lincoln. 2,000 people came to the final at the Oval Cricket Ground as the Wanderers won the first FA Cup. But the sport these people would have been watching was nothing like modern-day football. The precise dimensions of the playing field were not recorded, but FA rules of the time meant it could have been played on anything 100 yards wide by 200 yards wide. There would have been two flimsy goalposts at each end, and no crossbar. The crossbar would have to wait until 1882, 
and until 1892 for a goal net to be put in place. In the early part of the sport, it was refereed more like cricket. Club captains had to draw the referee's attention to fouls and referees were called umpires. While the wardrobe was effectively borrowed cricket gear, long trousers, flannel and heavy boots. If someone was to show you this spot today, you would not think it was football. But the important thing that made it football was that no player other than the keeper could catch the ball. That was a rule in place since 1867 and makes it football. The style of play of old football would have been very odd indeed. It was still very much like rugby, two backs, one half back and seven forwards. Players got the ball and hoofed it as far as they could up the pitch and whoever got the ball would dribble towards the goal. Passing was seen as dishonest. One problem with rugby had been goalie hanging and they got around this by banning the forward pass. Football used the Sheffield's rule which had something in it called offside to ban the practice of goalie hanging. This added in a layer of complexity and of 3D-ness towards the game by adding in the offside rule. With passing now saved, it wasn't long before the sport became more of a team sport rather than an individual one and it began to look a lot less like football and not rugby. It was 10 years after the first FA Cup final in 1882 when the last predominantly dribbling and kicking side beat a passing side. After this, pretty much everyone assumed the new 2-3-5 formation. Now the ball was moved across the pitch, down the pitch, in the air, as well as along the ground. This led to teams beginning to explore the wings more systematically, rather than clogging up the centre. And the game and spectacle of football was transformed in the mere 10 years. The early years of football was in the working class areas of Sheffield, Nottingham, Lancashire, the West Midlands and Central Scotland. Everywhere else in the country, it was rugby. In Lancashire alone, there were 28 clubs. And it was not so much there were so many clubs, but the crowds they were pulling. In Burnley, there were crowds of 12,000 every game as early as 1884. These huge audiences quickly led to professionalism. The history of professionalism in football is a long and arduous one, and I'm not going to get into it all. But reading about it, and the same thing in cricket, and the Olympics, as we did in a previous episode, has led me to believe that the idea and the whole concept of professionalism versus amateurism, and any idea of a salary cap, is inherently a class-based idea. It is not about reining in the spending of clubs, but denying predominantly working class men the right to offer their services on an open market. Something we should consider today. Football was still growing in the late Victorian period, and it was along major train routes where football proved most popular. Indeed, North Wales, which had very poor train services, even at the time, stayed very much true to rugby rather than football. When football reached fragmented communities, it often meant a club was set up for one group and the other, Catholics and Protestants in Glasgow being the most famous. The dawn of professionalism was heralded 
when the professionals of Blackburn Rovers beat amateurs Queen's Park of Glasgow in 1883, 1884 and 1885. 1885 was the last time an amateur side would ever reach the FA Cup final. The idea that huge working class audiences watching working class players would automatically lead to professionalisation is not true. When rugby saw a similar clash in 1895, it broke down the sport. When the aristocratic rugby union sanctioned a split with the working class northern towns who wanted to professionalise. In a generation, rugby union and rugby league were vastly different. Football, however, managed to avoid any sort of rift like that. Maybe the sport was just so popular, nobody wanted to touch it, but the professional player was still illegal in football during this time. But there was much work done in secret. People talk about football players these days, but even Neymar or the like would struggle to match Billy Mosforth, who was playing for Hallam in Sheffield in a derby against Wednesday. When a supporter offered him, quote, tend bob and free drinks all week if you change your shirt, close quotes, he duly came out in a Wednesday shirt. Teams could offer expenses and cover for work loss, but not payment for work. The case against professionalism came from both artisans who were concerned with the moral consequences of football and a conservative aristocracy who didn't want to lose their sporting prowess to what one aristocrat called, quote, the employment of the scum of the Scottish village, close quotes. This being a reference to many of their best players being Scottish. While cricket was majorly popular in England, football became the nation's game. Marxists were angry that this working class game was still being run by aristocrats, but the participation of both the working and the upper classes resulted in the game's growth being huge. One reason for the huge growth during the late Victorian period may have been the growth in living standards in Britain in the later 19th century, where family incomes increased 30%, giving people much more breathing room above the breadline. Trains meant that teams could go on mini tours of local areas in between FA Cup games. Fans would save all year in the hope their side would get the trip out to London for the FA Cup final. It was often the only time many from outside London would ever get to visit the capital. Football's burst of growth during the 1880s and 1890s meant many teams were set up, and they were attempting to gain as many fans as possible by setting up near transport locations. Tottenham was right next to White Hart Lane Station, Chelsea right next to Fulham Broadway, and later Arsenal would move to Highbury, which was near a Piccadilly Line station. In sports like baseball and cricket, teams had set up leagues in order to regulate games between each other and to provide regular competition. So, it was William McGregor who arranged a meeting of the 12 best sides at the time to set up a league. These 12 sides in 1888 effectively set up the pattern of football for the rest of the world. The league format was incredibly popular and sides were desperate to be admitted. In 1898 promotion and relegation was initiated and in 1905 two divisions of 20 teams were set up. 
The spread of football around the globe is an interesting one. Football is the most popular sport in many, many countries. But in countries run previously by the English and colonised by the English, it very rarely is the most popular sport. But in Britain's informal empire, where there had been no previous introduction of a sport, it caught on like wildfire. India had cricket, and Australia and New Zealand had rugby as their sporting interest. The US and Canada had its own sporting cultures, quickly developing by the time association football came around. But with the British internationalism of the late 19th century and early 20th century, America's limited interest overseas, it would be football exported to much of the world, not American football or baseball. During the Victorian period, sport itself was seen as a British pastime. Sport was seen as a reflection of British dominance, and some saw sport in the public school system as the reason for the rise of the British Empire. It was supposed to harden and solidify their mental as well as physical strengths. However, in most of the world, the first sightings other countries got of football was mostly working-class Britons in either the Navy, Armed Forces, or as railway workers kicking about a football. The first recorded kickabouts in Rotterdam, Copenhagen, Odessa, Rio, Lima, and Buenos Aires were all by the working classes. Whilst these working-class workers may have given people their first sight of football, they were seldom in the country long enough to introduce it to the people of these countries. It was the people of Britain's upper classes, who often lived in these countries, and often ruled them, who really introduced the sport. They could give football a social cachet that the upper class British of the time could represent. Britain's informal empire crossed the world and was just as important as its former one. This was the height of British cool. If you were living in South America or Europe and were rich enough, your teachers may have been British, and you looked to Britain for everything you could. While Britain saw itself as traditional and archaic, the world looked at its rapid growth and its technology as being of the future. But with Britain being awash with sport, why was it football to take off in these areas? It could have been rugby or cricket. Well, most likely for the same reason as it did in England. The simplicity of its rules, the scoring system, its flexibility in number of players and the space needed, the lack of need for equipment compared to rugby, and the lower chance of serious injury. Yet the other reason I found given for the rise in popularity of football is not an obvious one to us now. People were fascinated by these odd Brits who came from the world's hegemon and their game where they kicked a ball around with their feet. Kicking a ball exclusively with your feet is not the most obvious thing to do when seeing a ball. One Spanish writer said, quote, The peculiarity of this game resides in the fact that instead of striking the ball with a hand or bat, it is instead struck by the feet. Close quotes. Britain first exported football to continental Europe, where the game was first played amongst the university students of the great cities of Western Europe, but it soon spread to the docklands and ports of South America, 
with one spectator of one of the first ever matches in the New World being utterly amused by the spectacle. Quote, a group of Englishmen, a bunch of maniacs as they all are, get together from time to time to kick around something that looked like a bull's bladder. Close quotes. Football took off in South America. Brazilian football took off with Charles Miller introducing the game in 1894. In 1902, football was already popular enough to form a championship. Such was the popularity of the game that, in the first decade of the 20th century, English teams took summer tours to South America. Southampton in 1904, Everton and Tottenham in 1909, and Swindon in 1912 all toured, drawing, by all accounts, huge crowds to watch them. While Britain, and specifically England, are credited with football's invention, Switzerland probably gets the runners-up medal. Games vaguely resembling football were seen in the country in the 1850s, not long after they sprouted in England. And in 1904, the Swiss founded FIFA, and a Swiss man became the one to found FC Barcelona. Switzerland, in those early days, were football's second greatest exporters. But it was Austro-Hungary who, after the British teams, were its second greatest exponents. There was a large British presence in Vienna, Budapest and Prague, and these three cities helped to institute a strong football culture that would help Central Europe become a powerhouse in the interwar years. The First World War in 1914 may not seem like a good time for football, but indeed football prospered. The Christmas truce of 1914 helped to give football one of its oldest myths in its ability to bring people together. While the Russians were given footballs as part of their training, the Germans introduced it as part of their training programme, and the British, for much of the war, spoke about the war in football terminology, perhaps a patronising attempt to tell the British Tommy what was going on. The end of the war resulted in two things, the comparative growth of South American football during this period and the explosion in attendances in Europe after the war. International football was born just after formalising in 1872 between Scotland and England. It wasn't long until a home championship was arranged between the home nations. The attendances of these matches soon surpassed any seen by any other country until way after the First World War. In 1906, 100,000 watched Scotland beat England 2-1, and just before the First World War, 127,000 were drawn to the fixture. English amateurs won the 1908 and 1912 Olympics, and the first official FA-sanctioned tour by an English professional side also took place in 1908 to see England trounce Austria and later the Hungarians. However, not all football associations were as backward as the English, and regular international tours were already taking place during the first decade of the 20th century, which resulted in the setting up of FIFA in 1904. Many thought it would be the British who would and should lead this organisation, as they did in many other aspects of world regulation at the time but the conservative British refused to join in. The early Olympic Games, as we've seen before, 
were oddities to us now. But there was one sport that was played that was an unqualified success in those early years. Football was huge at the Olympics. With the British not playing the 1920 final, it was between Czechoslovakia and Belgium in Stockholm, and it saw 40,000 watch as Belgium triumphed. The 1924 final saw a country almost nobody had heard of, Uruguay, demolish their opponents. Whether it was an official World Cup or not, it doesn't matter. It was played by countries from all over the world, and when Uruguay were announced as victors, the crowd in Montevideo went wild with celebrations. It was a World Cup to them. In 1928 in Amsterdam, Uruguay this time played Argentina, and the two favourites of the tournament played as Uruguay once again confirmed themselves as the champions of the world. The success of the Olympics saw a push to move beyond the confines of the Olympic format and for FIFA to set up their own tournament. I think people look back at Uruguay now as a small peripheral country, but it is a rich country with wool, hide and beef as its primary exports. After promising to pay all the expenses, Uruguay was given the 1930 FIFA World Cup. The Qatar of its day, Uruguay built all new stadiums and Uruguay easily progressed to the World Cup final. Nobody really knows what happened in the World Cup final, how many people were there and how many Argentinians were there, but it was a huge event by all accounts and saw Uruguay win in repeat of the 1928 Olympic final. After finishing third in the 1938 final, Brazil was given the 1942 World Cup, but with the Second World War it took until 1950 to take place. Brazil had meticulous preparations for the tournament and on the way beat Sweden 7-1 and Spain 6-1. The tournament, the only in World Cup history, was won by the winner of a final round robin. In the final group game, Brazil only had to draw with Uruguay to win the World Cup. The 1929 Wall Street crash had gutted the Uruguayan economy, so much so that no team was sent to the World Cup finals in 1934 or 1938. Even the Uruguayans thought this would be a Brazilian victory. In front of an estimated audience of 200,000, they all watched Brazil take the lead after the mayor had already congratulated the Brazilians as victors of the tournament. Do I need to say more about what would happen next? Pele would later say of the match, quote, There was sadness so great, so profound, that it seemed like the end of a war, with Brazil the loser and many people dead. Close quotes. Uruguay won the game 2-1, and the game would be remembered as not only a part of Brazilian sporting history, but is one of the country's most disappointing moments. In pre-Second World War Europe, football was used by many on the continent for propaganda purposes. The infamous photo of the English team's Nazi saluting, while the Italians used 1938 in a similar way to the Germans at the 1936 Olympics. After the Second World War, Britain found itself as no longer top of the world in military or political terms, it was neither an empire in geopolitics and no longer in football. England were humiliated in the 1950 World Cup by an amateur USA team. 
But it was a defeat by Hungary where England would realise it was no longer the top of the world. At a time when communism was trying to limit freedom of expression, it is ironic that it was in communist Hungary where, on the football pitch at least, individual liberty rung. Gustav Sebs was given the full backing of the communist apparatus to achieve his aim of making Hungary a great side. He approached football with radically new tactics and revolutionised the use of space to achieve these ends. Hungary, with the legendary Fenric Pukas, won 10 games out of 10, beating the world champions Italy along the way. So, when they arrived on English shores, with Sebs looking to be the first man to beat England on English soil, it took only 45 minutes for him to crumble the English footballing empire. 45 seconds in, a thrust down the right wing is clumsily cleared by the English defence. In a high-speed slalom of one-touch passes from the halfway line to the edge of the English penalty area, the Hungarians carve up the opposition. Totally unmarked, Heide Kuti rifles the heavy, sodden English ball into the net. England get one back, but in the next 55 minutes, the Hungarians score another five. A rematch later in Budapest also ended 7-1 to the Hungarians. All Hungary now needed was the World Cup to confirm their place as the best team in the world. After the Second World War, Germany had been expelled from all international competitions. But in 1950, they were allowed back into FIFA. The Hungarians swatted aside all, but the Germans progressed to the final almost unnoticed. The Hungarians went 2-0 up within the first 10 minutes, but then in what is known as the miracle of Bern, the Germans fought back to beat the greatest football team the world had yet seen. In a country trying to forget any semblance of patriotism, or national pride, two million Germans met their team on the trains back from Switzerland. Many heard radio commentator Herbert Zimmermann's cry of it's over, it's over, at the final whistle, as the moment of closure on Germany's occupation and the true founding moment of the Federal Republic. I don't think it would be a stretch to describe 1950 to 1974 or thereabout as the golden age of football. Great teams, great players, and the globalisation of football and its opening accessibility into new competitions. These new competitions were aided by two things, floodlights enabling play during the night and the goodwill fostered by increasing international cooperation. Like FIFA, the French had created the European Cup of European club teams aided by the arrogance of the English. After Stan Cullis claimed his Wolverhampton Wanderers were the champions of Europe, a tournament was set up by the writers of L'Equipe magazine to prove this. From this moment on, the European Cup would prove the true match of any European champion. However, it was television that was reshaping football more than any new competition. It is no coincidence that before television, the great players Picicci, Seidler, Bloomer, Scaroni and Piola are hardly known, but Bobby Charlton, George Best, Beckenbauer, Cruyff and Pelé are world famous. And during the 1960s, television took off as a broadcast medium in Europe, and while football had created some national moments, such as Uruguay winning the Olympics and World Cup, 
Brazil's loss and Germany's victory. The television made this far more regular. Millions watched Italy reach the 1970 final and England win the 1966 World Cup. As football progressed into the 1980s, it faced many problems. Old crumbling stadiums and fan violence all played out in front of huge TV audiences. Heisel, Hillsborough, Valley Parade, the Lushniki Stadium and a general level of hooliganism that was turning people off football. Football, it would seem, had become all innovated out. There was little exciting on the field either as innovation died and football became agricultural. If you're being naughty, you could say this is the reason why English football became so dominant during the 1980s. It perfectly matched their style of play. But following the Heisel Stadium disaster, English football became banned from European club competitions for five years. This offered some introspection for once, and with the 1990 World Cup reaching new heights of media coverage, commerciality and packaging that made marketing boss drool, it gave English football a new idea to a backdrop of falling attendances and violence surrounding games. The decline of football culture, especially in Northern Europe over this time, is not surprising. Football is a working class game, mostly, and the most of the fans would have been feeling the shocks of de-industrializing of traditional manufacturing. With the violence, many people did not go to games, and they preferred to watch from home. In the British case, this resulted in competition for rights between ITV and BBC, inching up the price of TV revenue during the 1980s. In France, the first satellite systems came into effect, and Canal Plus in France showed the way for satellite broadcasters of football. Football was repackaged as a middle-class game for the consumer, and like many other things since, football became gentrified. Hooliganism was made a turn-off. Nobody wanted to watch matches to see a repeat of Heisel. The top 20 sides in the Football League broke away to found the Premier League. B Sky B followed Canal Plus by winning the bidding rights at the astronomical price of £304 million for three years of TV rights. The Premier League became one of football's great stories of reinvention and is now the most popular sporting league in the world. This podcast has focused a lot on European football because it is the most popular, but we've also touched on South American football. But the thing with football, especially in the last 25 years, is that it has broken through to almost every market on earth and is almost unrivaled. It is the world's most popular sport and the most popular sport in Asia, Africa and rapidly growing markets where it has previously struggled to gain a foothold. It is growing in the Americas, in India and in China. Football has changed a lot, from its use in political ends to its embrace of celebrity culture that now pervades much talk of it. But it is firmly ensconced in the culture of countries all the world over, and this will not change. All over the world, football is a unifier. The World Cup, for example, offers a coming together, a festival that doesn't rely on religion or race. You can support your own team, follow others, and enjoy the flow and narrative. Football was never predestined to become the most popular sport. 
but backed by the British and its simplicity, along with its quick, easy-to-follow nature, meant it was a better candidate than basketball, golf, or any other sport that could have taken its place. There have been many attempts to explain what football really means. Some call it bricks and circuses, some call it secular religion or an empty pleasure, and it is certain that football has been used as a distraction by some. And with their polytheistic celebrations of heroes and chants and rituals, football is almost religion-like. But to me, sporting culture is its own thing. It has similarities, but it is no religion. Peruvian novelist Mario Vargas Llosa once described football as, quote, It offers to people something that they can scarcely ever have. An opportunity to have fun, to enjoy themselves, to get excited, worked up, to feel certain intense emotions that daily routine rarely offers them. A good game of football is enormously intense and absorbing. It is ephemeral, non-transcendent, innocuous, an experience where the effect disappears at the same time as the cause. And that is its appeal, that it is exciting and empty. Close quotes. Football doesn't change the world, but it represents it. From the early beginnings in working-class towns to its globalisation at the turn of the 20th and then the 21st century, its retreat in the interwar years to the increase after the Second World War and then to the globalisation again, as Africa and Asia make football truly the global game. Football in the West shows the shift from working-class towns to their gentrification, with the third way of Blair and Gerhard Schroeder in the 1990s paving the way for football's reinvention. Today, their neoliberal experiments have perhaps gone too far, as football has moved from a capitalist to a corporatist mode. By 2050, I would say rapid economic development of African and Asian countries will allow for football to truly be a global equal game. Englishmen playing in China, Japanesemen playing in America, Kenyans playing in South America. Football is the only true global sport. And for all sports, good and bad, to have something so universal is a great thing. And for this reason, football is number 84 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.